This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jamie Fielson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to our briefing, North Korea's Continuous Provocations. Uh, North Korea's continuous provocative behavior has heightened tensions on the Korean Peninsula and caused alarm throughout Northeast Asia and beyond. Most recently, Pyongyang sent a signal to Washington by launching a missile on July 4th that appears to have been an ICBM capable of reaching Alaska. This provocation is the latest in a string of destabilizing actions that include missile tests, the development of nuclear weapons, and the assassination of, in Malaysia of Kim, Kim Jong-un's older half-brother, Kim Jong-un. The seriousness of North Korea's behavior was summed up by Secretary of Defense James Mattis when he testified before the House Armed Services Committee that North Korea was the most urgent and dangerous threat to peace and security. So today, um, we are lucky to be joined by Bruce Bennett, uh, who will talk about North Korea's nuclear and missile programs, the assassination of Kim, Kim Jong-un, China's role on the, uh, on the Korean, Korean Peninsula, and importantly for you guys, what the implications are for U.S. policy. Bruce is a senior international defense researcher at the RAND Corporation who works primarily on topics such as strategy, force planning, and counterproliferation. He's an expert in Northeast Asian military issues, and he's visited the region over 100 times. His research has addressed issues such as future South Korean military force requirements, the Korean military balance, counters to North Korean chemical and biological weapon threats in Korea and Japan, dealing with the North Korean collapse, potential Chinese intervention in, the Korean, in Korean contingencies, changes in the Northeast Asian security environment, and deterrence of nuclear threats, including strengthening the U.S. nuclear umbrella. I could continue to go on, but I think suffice it to say, uh, he's truly an expert on these issues, so a good person here to answer all of your questions. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Bruce to start today's briefing. Good afternoon. It's uh, good to be here with you. I'm uh, anxious to talk a little bit about North Korea. As Jamie said, I've been to South Korea over 100 times. I work usually with the U.S. military, but also with the Korean military, uh, and I'm actually headed back on Friday of this week. I'm going to talk about provocations today, but as background, we need to understand something about the North Korean nuclear weapon threat. One of the premier experts on North Korea in the United States is Dr. Sig Hecker. He is a former director of Los Alamos. He's currently a professor at Stanford University. You may remember the history. In November of 2010, just before North Korea shelled the island, he visited the Yongbyon nuclear plant. I believe it was his fourth or fifth visit there and was shown the North Korean uranium enrichment facility which was the first time North Korea had given the United States a very clear demonstration of their uranium enrichment capabilities. Dr. Hecker, in early 2015, was in China talking with Chinese nuclear scientists, and they told him that they thought at that point in time North Korea already had 20 nuclear weapons, that by the end of 2016 they would have 40 nuclear weapons, and by 2020, they would have something in the range of 75 to 80 nuclear weapons. Now, those are big numbers. As we'll show you in a little bit, 
That's very different from our historical considerations, and it changes the nature of our concerns. If we turn to American experts, one of the premier American experts, Dr. David Albright, wrote at about the same time about North Korea's potential nuclear weapons, showing the, a low, a medium, and a high estimate based upon assumptions, but indicating that they could be anywhere from 10 to 20 in 2014 up to potentially 20 to 100 in the year 2020. Now, if we want to look at things today and you run from those estimates, something in the range of 20 to 50 North Korean nuclear weapons is probably in the ballpark we should be considering. That's higher than some experts argue at this point in time, but from these numbers, those are the ones that you would pull, especially since Dr. Albright's low estimate assumed that there was only one uranium enrichment facility in North Korea, and we are pretty sure, according to what Dr. Hecker has said, that there are at least two or three. We just don't know where the others are. Now, why should we be concerned about having them nu have nuclear weapons? Well, because in the North Korean mindset, nuclear weapons have many roles, but a key role is the threats that they want to make against the outside world. Since the 70s, North Korea has been acting as if they have nuclear weapons. These earlier statements are by their diplomats to allies at the time in Eastern Europe. But in 1994, North Korea started talking about turning Seoul into a sea of fire. If you think about a nuclear weapon, a nuclear weapon going off would create a sea of fire. And in fact, North Korea has even become more literal more recently in talking about nuclear seas of fire and the threats that they make. So how bad would one of these kinds of threats be? Well, we believe so far that North Korea has been working with primarily weapons of roughly the Hiroshima class. So about 10 kilotons, which is around the size of the weapon that went off in Hiroshima. This is a map of Seoul. If a nuclear weapon went off in Seoul at 10 kilotons, this illustrates the kind of damage that could be done. Damage with blast effects, with radiation, and then also fallout effects that would go downwind of wherever the detonation went off. In this particular case, about 350,000 people would be killed or seriously injured. You know, roughly 100 times 9-11. It's a very big number. If we look at it also economically, there is a huge cost of this kind of e explosion. Over a 10-year period of time, perhaps as much as the annual North South Korean GDP level. So losing about a tenth of their GDP per year thereafter. And people will say, well, there are weapons of different sizes. You know, the North Korean initial test in 2006 was about one kiloton. Most of the physicists said, hey, that was a fizzle. It just didn't work very well. Well, the reality is that kind of weapon could kill 90,000 people. Not really a fizzle to other than the physicists, I think. And if they got 50 kilotons, which appears to be what they were trying to get in their January 2016 test, and we know that because of the depth at which they buried the weapon, could be about 900,000 people killed or seriously injured. Really, really big numbers from a single weapon. And remember, we're talking about 
maybe 20 to 50 today. What about other weapons of mass destruction? Well, North Korea has, we believe, significant stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons. This illustrates that the uncertainty ranges on those weapons are very broad. They depend upon wind to deliver it, atmospheric conditions, and those can change the results significantly. But notice for those quantities, the numbers are still significantly greater than the 9-11 kinds of numbers. Finally, what about philosophy of actually using weapons? Back in 1993 was the first nuclear crisis with North Korea. The International Atomic Energy Agency had discovered North Korea was apparently uh, enriching uranium, reprocessing plutonium. They were very concerned. And at that point in time, Kim Il-sung called together all of his senior military people. Kim Il-sung was the leader of North Korea, the grandfather of the current leader. And he asked his senior military people, if we fight the Americans and we lose, what should we do? Now, the military people were all smart enough to know that was really not a good time to answer his question. But his son, Kim Jong-il, the father of the current leader, spoke up and said, if we lose, I will be sure to destroy the earth. What good is the earth without North Korea? Now, this is reported in foreign policy, this experience. Kim Jong-il's Russian tutor defected and reported on this incident. But I've talked with a number of very senior North Korean defectors. And they say, first of all, this is widely known in North Korea. And secondly, it is posted on a number of buildings in Pyongyang. Why? Because they think that if we hear this, it will deter us from trying to take the regime down. So what difference does it make how many weapons they have? Well, if North Korea has only three nuclear weapons, which was historically the case, then they probably withhold them for regime survival to try to stop any attack the United States and South Korea make into the North. Historically, we've talked about the fact that if North Korea invades the South, the only way to really end such a war is to take down the regime. Because if you don't, they could repeat the whole process in six months or a year again. And so if we were to do that, they could withhold weapons to try to coerce us to stop. But if North Korea really does have 50 or so nuclear weapons, their possibilities change considerably to a much wider range of potential uses. And these are really concerning because many of these uses would be primarily considered at the very beginning of any conflict. And the dynamics in the theater have gone in that direction. South Korea is now fielding what they call their kill chain. It's designed to destroy the North Korean missiles and nuclear weapons, if we only knew where they were. And they always talk about it being used preemptively, which means that if something develops in North Korea, they fire at an island again or into Seoul especially, South Korea could execute their attack on the North Korean weapons. And North Korea's been very clear that because of that threat, they will try to preemptively launch their missiles at South Korea. So from the very beginning of any conflict, we could see nuclear weapons used, and probably not just a single weapon. All right, what's been the pattern of missile tests? Well, what you can see from this is 
This has really changed over time. In the early years, there were periodic tests of weapons, of missiles. Uh, not until 2006 do you get your first nuclear test. And in particular, if you look at the Kim Il-sung period, there's some basic testing for development purposes. You turn to Kim Jong-il, and he does very little in the way of missile launches, except for three occasions. And then you go to the Kim Jong-un period, and all of a sudden, missiles become a major issue. Many, many, many launches. And for many reasons. One of the most important of which we have to remember, of course, is missile development. But probably more important to Kim Jong-il is, or Kim Jong-un is, he leads a very weak country. You know, you talk about the North Korean economy generously as being a third world economy. This is an impoverished country which gets little outside respect. The president of China, Xi Jinping, has had eight summit meetings since he became the leader with South Korea and zero with his ally, Kim Jong-un. He is effectively telling the elites in North Korea, North Korea is not important, Kim Jong-un is a weakling, don't have to deal with him. That's not a message that Kim Jong-un wants disseminated. And so he is doing these nuclear tests to prove to his people he's powerful, he's capable, one of only nine countries in the world who has nuclear weapons. That's a concern because as he gets weaker, he likely will continue to increase those activities. And he certainly hasn't been slacking at the pace he's been going this year. All right, so let's talk about the last year or so, the pattern. What's interesting is in January and February of last year, he did a nuclear test and then a satellite launch, which is a counterpart to an ICBM launch, similar kind of missile that could carry a nuclear warhead. In early March, we have a UN Security Council resolution against those events. From that point on, up until October of last year, he's doing regular, every month, missile tests. Some very high quantity, others more moderate in the months. And then he has this big break. And you ask, well, why is he doing a break? Because it helps you understand his rationale. The answer there is he was playing politics, I believe. In October of last year, President Park of South Korea got into trouble because of some of the things she was doing. In December, she was impeached. In February, or in March, that impeachment was confirmed, and she was out of office. During that period of time, Kim Jong-un's major emphasis was I really want to see a liberal government elected in South Korea. I've had it with 10 years of conservative governments. But if he continued launching missiles and doing nuclear tests, he would have given political hay to the conservatives in South Korea. So he stopped doing it for a period. Yet he began again before the election that was held in May. And so let's ask, why did he do that? We turn to this year. On January 1st, the North Korean leader always does a New Year's Day speech. In his speech this year, he said, I am going to launch an ICBM this year. I'm going to test one. January 2nd, 
President-elect Trump at that stage said, it won't happen. Now think about it. If you are the leader of North Korea, you are supposed to be the god of North Korea as far as the people of North Korea are concerned. And when the president-elect of the United States says, it won't happen, why, that's a major challenge to you. You have got to make it happen to prove to your leaders that you're superior. So, first of all, he says, we can do it anywhere and any time, any place in North Korea. Secondly, then, in February, he actually launches a ballistic missile. The ballistic missile is a new kind. It's a solid fuel missile. It's one that's got substantial range, and he claims that it is the ICBM first stage, so he's already tested part of the ICBM for his internal political audience. We didn't pick that up very much in the United States. He also said, you should know, because President Trump did nothing about this, that President Trump has no plan for stopping our ICBM test. So again, he's making political points. Now, at roughly the same time, one day after the test, Kim Jong-un's people murder his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam. That's a major event. It's a major event for a variety of reasons, so let's talk about those. Kim Jong-nam was the oldest son of Kim Jong-il, the father of the current leader of North Korea. He was the original heir apparent. Everybody assumed he was going to take over. But he made a major mistake in 2001, I believe it was. He picked up a Dominican Republic passport and tried to sneak into Japan so that he and his family could go to Tokyo Disneyland. Um, he got caught. He was uh, held by the Japanese authorities and then sent back to China. And that was a major embarrassment for his father. From that point on, his father started moving away from him being the heir. So that then led to Kim Jong-un, the third son of Kim Jong-il, becoming the potential heir and eventually in 2010, the designated heir. But it's very important to remember, between the time that Kim Jong-un was in middle school in Europe and the time of 2010, we don't even have a picture of him. It was against North Korean law to talk about succession. It was a capital offense. So when he is announced in 2010, most North Korean people are saying, Kim Jong, who? Who is this guy? Why is he the leader? Because in North Korean philosophy, the leader of the country is supposed to be the most capable, strongest individual. And it was hard for the North Korean people to believe that. All right, so what happens from there? China was absolutely furious about the killing of Kim Jong-nam. And so six days later, they announce a coal import cutoff. Now, coal's a big deal for North Korea. In 2016, it was 40% of North Korea's exports. Major source of foreign currency. So they cut it off. What would you expect? Well, of course, Kim Jong-un had to respond. 
In early March, Kim Jong-un, roughly two weeks later, has four ballistic missiles launched towards Japan. Now, this is very interesting because what they said at the time was, we are really upset about the U.S.-South Korean exercise that was going on, the key resolve exercise. We're furious about this, so we're launching missiles at Japan. And you go, uh, wait a minute, you're launching them at Japan, and why is that? The only answer they came up with was, well, we're launching them at the U.S. bases in Japan, or as if we were, out to about the same range. But even that doesn't hold water. Because if you look at the five, six major air bases the U.S. uses in Japan, only one of them is within range of the missiles they launched. These were 1,000-kilometer range missiles. They would need something with a substantial longer range to cover those other five bases. So we know something's interesting going on here. And the interesting part is extend that range ring in the other direction. If you run it over China, it covers roughly half of the biggest Chinese cities, including Shanghai, many of the industrial parts of China. It was really a significant example. And you have to say, they didn't say it was targeted potentially to demonstrate capability against China, but North Korea almost never criticizes China directly. It does things indirectly in order not to totally undermine the relationship. So that was the way they chose to do it, to respond. Now, if we then go forward, of course, we had the election in South Korea. So this part of Kim Jong-un responding to President Trump continues over March, April, and May. It starts with a bunch of failed launches in late March through April. And then an interesting series of events happen. In one of the Chinese newspapers, there is a statement posted in April that says, China could bomb North Korean nuclear facilities, and they say especially the Yongbyon facility. Now again, nothing appears in Chinese media without some level of government approval. If that statement was in the Chinese media, somewhere in the Chinese government, someone was pretty upset at North Korea. From my Chinese sources, there were a whole lot of people in China upset with North Korea. How did North Korea respond? Shortly thereafter, North Korea publishes, I believe for the first time, statements that go effectively, China has betrayed us. China hates us. They're not doing what they should be doing as an ally. And they have not said that kind of thing before. And China responded and says, no, no, it's you, North Korea, that's the problem. What we're seeing is a degree of friction in the China-North Korea relationship that we have not in the past. From what I understand from Chinese colleagues, this is a case of the Chinese leadership, on the one hand, really hating what North Korea is doing and not at all happy about the fact that North Korea refuses to accept Chinese influence. But on the other hand, China is also reluctant to see a regime collapse in North Korea. 
They don't want a flood of hundreds of thousands of North Korean refugees into China. Northeast China is the poorest economic part of China. And we think of it as Manchuria from World War II, the industrial area. Well, that's a long time ago. Now it's the Rust Belt of China. They do not want large numbers of North Korean refugees in China where there are already many ethnic Koreans, that could be a destabilizing influence. So China's careful. They didn't go too far, but they are moving in the direction of sooner or later dumping North Korea. And you do have to ask the question, if we want them to dump North Korea, why aren't we acting to, pro to promote that movement? All right. Then in May, North Korea does a series of successful launches of different types of missiles. They're now trying to demonstrate a range of capabilities. And finally, on July 4th, Korea time, they do an ICBM launch. Now think about July 4th. If you're a foreign country trying to catch American attention, is there a better day than July 4th to launch missiles? And if you don't think so, you'll remember my chart before of the pattern over history. The major launches done in 2006 and in 2009 were also done on July 4th. So this is an attention-getting activity by North Korea. But they did launch what was effectively an ICBM. But be careful when we say that. North Korea's missile was only shot 900 and some kilometers but it was shot 2,800 kilometers into the air. If you shoot that on an optimal trajectory, it probably goes out about 65 to 6,700 kilometers with a one-ton warhead. By definition, any missile with a range more than 5,500 kilometers is an ICBM. That doesn't mean it can hit all of the United States. In fact, this missile can hit Alaska but it can't reach Honolulu with that size warhead. It certainly can't reach San Francisco and absolutely can't reach New York. So they still have some development to go along their path. Now, why would they want to be able to do this? Think about the 1950s. In the 1950s, the British developed nuclear weapons and Congress responded with a whole series of laws which prohibited U.S. government personnel from talking with our allies about nuclear weapons. No technology discussion, no military discussion. It was all prohibited. And for a while that probably worked, but eventually by the time you got to the late 50s, it was pushing many of our allies to develop nuclear weapons. And in fact, when Charles de Gaulle was elected as the president of France, he said, look, the Americans will not trade New York for Paris. If there is a threat on the, on the continent, the U.S. isn't going to use nuclear weapons if the Soviets could fire at American cities. And that's the kind of thing Kim Jong-un is trying to get to. It's called decoupling in the academic literature. He's trying to convince the Americans that we will not trade San Francisco or Seattle for Seoul that if there's a North Korean threat, we are going to back off. Now, of course, that's up to a president what we do, but they're hoping to have that effect. 
and in particular, they're hoping to convince the South Koreans of that effect. All right, so where are we? Summary. Currently, the United States is insisting that North Korea denuclearize, and we're saying all options are on the table. The military action is possible. I won't go into it in detail, but if you look at my RAND website, I just had an op-ed published on Friday that says there is no such thing as a surgical strike against North Korea. A surgical strike will do nothing of importance if you're hitting just one target, and if you go after even one target, Seoul will almost certainly be shelled by artillery, and that'll be the start of a big war. You can read the rest on the web. Um, North Korea is saying, meanwhile, we are not going to give up our nuclear weapons. They haven't said that once or twice. They've said it over and over and over again. And why do they say that? They say back in history when Gaddafi was developing, working on chemical weapons and on nuclear weapons, the U.S. pressed him to give all of that up, telling him, if you give it up, you'll be fine. We'll take care of you. And then once he gave it up, the U.S. participated in taking his regime down. And so the North Koreans say, you can't trust those Americans. We're not going to be fools like Gaddafi. We're not going to give up our survival means. So this is important for North Korea. They are trying to get that kind of decoupling as well. What about China? China is basically applying sanctions, but it doesn't want to do so much as to cause a collapse of the North Korean regime. They don't want the refugees, and let's be very true, truthful. In March of last year, Xi Jinping said, I will not let war or chaos develop on the peninsula. Now, here's a Chinese leader who can't stop North Korea from launching a ballistic missile. How is he going to stop war or chaos? I think you can pretty directly draw from that. He's prepared to commit Chinese troops into North Korea. And that would be a very big deal development that we need to be thinking about. What else? Well, look about it from the Korean perspective. You have a new government in South Korea. New government, President Moon, his philosophy is, well, if we just compromise with North Korea, we'll be able to get to a peaceful solution. Well, look what's happened so far to him. He has had no better experience with North Korea than his predecessor, President Park. He's tried to send humanitarian aid north, do exchanges, and North Korea has consistently said, no way. Why would they say that? South Korea is a weakling country, according to their philosophy. They want to be dealing with the United States. They want President Trump to come to Pyongyang. Now, why would they want that? Well, because in historical Chinese culture, the weak leader comes to the location of the strong leader to pay his obeisance. That is what they want, because then the leader can claim he is all-powerful, as he suggests. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.